Hello, and welcome back to Doctor Informed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 7. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed is primarily for those doctors working in hospitals, taking you beyond medical knowledge and talking about all those things that you need to know to be a good doctor, but which don't involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe, a general surgical registrar in the northeast of England, and I work as a freelance clinical editor at the BMJ. In our new season of Doctor Informed, we will be discussing topics relevant to hospital doctors, those often not covered formally in teaching, which can, and today I hope will, inspire some debate amongst doctors. Today we will be talking about grit, what it is, how it relates to medicine, and whether we should be considering using grit scoring when recruiting doctors, either to medical school or to specialty. The definition of grit was developed by Angela Duckworth, an American psychologist and researcher. Grit refers to the combination of passion and perseverance for long-term and meaningful goals. It is the ability to persist at something you feel passionate about, even when doing so can seem hard. Both in the UK and right around the world right now, many doctors are choosing to leave the profession. In the wake of the pandemic, we are seeing more and more reports of poor well-being amongst healthcare professionals with burnout high. What can grit tell us about this? Do we all just need more grit? Or are even the grittiest people limited when faced with a pandemic, waiting lists or failing health systems? Can understanding grit help support clinicians better? I'm thrilled today to be joined by our panel and our expert joining us is Simone Batchen, a neurosurgeon working in Brooklyn, New York, who has researched extensively on this subject. Thank you, Clara. I've been here for about 16 years now. And as a female neurosurgeon, I am in the great minority here in the United States, where about uh, 7% of neurosurgeons at this point are female. I had the distinct pleasure many years ago now to seeing Angela Duckworth talk about grit in person. And at that point afterwards, I was thinking what I had been through, through my training as a medical student and then as a resident in neurosurgery, and even as an attending as years went on, and then what all of us as physicians have to go through to get to where we are, and started to think about the question of grit in medicine. My focus was also looking at grit and gender, and so I called up Professor Duckworth and I said, you know, what do you think? And she had never been able to find a difference really meaningfully between men and women in even the most difficult fields, but sent me on my way and has given me great advice um, and had a lot of meaningful conversations with her about grit and medicine since then. So I did publish a paper several years ago now looking at grit and surgeons. The punchline really being that there was no difference in gender between men and women surgeons. This is amongst about 1,100 surveys. The interesting point, and I think we can probably dig into it a little more later, of what we did see was that while there was a correlation with burnout, and I think that's something that's been documented and discussed in the past, interestingly, women had the same grit scores as men, but higher burnout rates. And so I think when you're thinking about medicine and burnout, as you talked about in the introduction, it's interesting to think about, you know, it's not grit alone, but what else could it be? And, you know, we had our own hypotheses of what those things might be that were also protective or predictive of uh, burnout that we can dig into later. Well, I can't wait to talk about this. Uh, And I'm really pleased to be joined by the rest of our panel today. Um, We have some familiar faces. Uh, We're joined again by Declan. Declan, would you like to remind our listeners about yourself? Yes, hiya. Um, I'm Declan Murphy. I'm a current academic ophthalmology trainee um, up in the north of England. Um, I find this topic absolutely fascinating. I think particularly around... um, you know, the, the concerns with the NHS and the, the workforce problems as well that we're having. Um, so I'm really, really interested and really excited to have a discussion about it. And after a bit of a break, I am thrilled Aisha is back with us on the podcast. Aisha, for those of our listeners who have not been with us from the beginning, shocking, uh, would you like to reintroduce yourself? 
Yeah, sure. Thanks, Clara. And thanks for having me again. So um, hi, everyone. My name's Aisha Ashmore. I am an Arbs and Gynae Reg in the East Midlands and um, super interested in this topic as well. It's caused um, lots of um, um, contentious arguments in my household. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to see where this discussion takes us. Excellent. Those who have listened to the first few episodes of our next series will know that we like to get ourselves warmed up um, by discussing what people are talking about on the wards or what has been in the news recently. Um, I can't take credit for this one, but one of our other panellists drew my attention to the story of Damar Hamlin, um, a defensive back who plays for the NFL American football team Buffalo Bills. In a high-profile matchup against the Cincinnati Bengals, the young player, born 1998, which makes me feel very old, um, collapsed on the pitch whilst playing, having had a cardiac arrest. Did anyone else see this story? Has anyone else read about this? Yeah, I saw it, and I, I, I don't. It was, it was interesting to see all of the kind of coverage around it because, you know, there was this whole thing about heart attacks and cardiac arrests again. And there's so much like misinformation, even on reputable news sites. I think something, even I think on the BBC, I think I saw something which was factually incorrect. And it just, and it brought back all of the stuff about, you know, the footballers in um, mm. in the in the last few years. What what was his name again? Christian Eriksen. And all of all of um, what happened with him. And it was just fascinating to see that actually there's still no learning from from, mm. from a kind of journalistic perspective about medical conditions and diseases. Do you think that has a, a big impact on the public perception? I think so, because especially how people perceive what these kind of medical conditions are and what may relate to them. So I think we were talking about anti-vaxxers mm. um, and how they think that this might be related to the COVID vaccine and that's why we're seeing so many you know young professionals um, athletes collapsing everywhere so nothing's changed yeah I, I thought it's really interesting as well like you know the, um, I'm looking at the, the tweet so one the Georgia congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted before the COVID, va- COVID vaccines, we didn't see athletes dropping dead on the playing field like we do now. Time to investigate the COVID vaccines. Uh, that tweet has been viewed around, well, over a million times a day for the last three days since it went up, um, which shocks me that pe- we're, you know, we're still getting this level of, of misinformation. Declan, you're a football fan. What do you think about this? <laughs> First of all, I'm not a football fan. You're not? <laughs> or, an Amer- or an American football fan. Okay, different I'm pretty sure this was American football. It was, I am, yeah. I am, however, a, a basketball fan, even though I'm about five foot seven. Um, so I have some <laughs> interest in sports, yes. Um, I think it's really interesting. I think there's a, there's a couple of things. I think, firstly, if, you know, the, the classic discrepancy between cardiac arrest and, and heart attack... You know, that's been going on forever, and clearly we're not doing something well enough to inform the public. I'm always of the opinion that, you know, the general public aren't stupid. Um, we're perhaps just not com- communicating that well enough to them. Um, so I think there's that part of the thing where actually we as, like, you know, a medical profession have to take some responsibility, as well as the journalists also have to, um, in terms of how they actually are communicating with the public. Because um, it's a very basic concept, and I refuse to believe that the public aren't able to understand that. Um, so I think, yeah, that's one interesting thing. And then you have the other side of the thing, the misinformation, um, where, you know, clearly there are groups who are knowingly, you know, attributing these things to COVID, for example. And then you have the public who, again, I feel aren't stupid, <laughs> but, but perhaps haven't been um, kind of educated in how to critically appraise information. And again, mm-hmm. I think in, in some ways that's kind of our responsibility as medical professionals, always just educate as full stop. Um, so it's really interesting. And these things pop up every single time. There's something, you know, in the news about a health related, health related thing to any celebrity. Um, I think Rod Gilbert is in, is in the news at the moment with his prostate cancer. And there's a lot of kind of um a lack of understanding about that as well so yeah I mean I just kind of looked at it and I was like well we really need to start educating people better and the medias that we use to educate people need to be you know aligned with what you know helps people to understand things um 
but yeah, the whole misinformation side of thing as well is just I, I don't know how to <laughs> I don't know how to solve that problem, sadly. I think yeah. it's quite a lot to do with us as medical professionals. There's been like this massive push to go jargon free. But there hasn't been like a kind of quality control for the jargon free language that we use. So I think because there isn't this kind of standard on how to use non medical language, we ourselves as medics are maybe getting it wrong. Um, when we're describing things, not using medical language, and then that's being propagated. Yeah, and I, th- I think similarly with kind of like the explosion of Twitter, I think people are also using medical language, but inappropriately. So, you know, don't have, not the qualifications, but haven't been educated in that field and are thrown about these terms, which, you know, very much sounds like they have a legitimate mm. <laughs> understanding, but, but really don't. So it's very difficult for the general public to be able to, you know, decide you know, what, what, you know, what, what the truth is. Yeah, if people start using sports terms, I would have no idea if they were <laughs> accurate or not. I'm going to be completely honest. <laughs> Interestingly, I, this is a sort of aside, but um, stemming from what you've said, Declan, um, when you guys write letters to patients after clinic, do you write it to the patient or do you write it to their general practitioner, their family doctor with the patient copied in? It depends on the consultant you're working for, doesn't it? Does it? I don't know. <laughs> I, I always wrote to the patient. Uh, yeah. I mean, I didn't really care what who the consultant was. Um, and <laughs> to, be, to be honest, I know, I'm such a rebel. Um, but yeah, I think it's... It, it, there was a time when I was about 14 and I remember going, my dad had an OGD. This is very off topic, so I don't, I'm an ophthalmologist now, I can't remember what's a esophagastroduodenal. <laughs> had an OGD, a, a thing down the throat anyway. You'll know this, Claire. A, a camera test of the gullet. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Um, and it was just when they came to explain his results, um, it was so terribly explained to him that he had absolutely no idea and maybe I was a bit older maybe I was like 17 18 I might have just started med school but I remember like being like can you please explain that again because that makes absolutely no sense and I think that's always stuck in the back of my mm. mind of like you actually have to be able to communicate what the hell's going on to these people um so even if the consultant wanted xyz put in I would also add on you know this is what it means in real terms so mm. I, but I think may- maybe that's just me where you know I do try to be patient focused can be <laughs> no I was I actually found out the other day that it is the NHS standard now to write your letter you, we should all be writing the letters to the patients uh, in jargon free way to summarize the consultation which um I've always tried to do but a bit like you Aisha sometimes my boss is like why are you doing that write it to their GP you know is there a standard Simone in the US um do, do you write letters to patients or do you write it to the family doctor uh, so with the electronic medical record, it's a little bit of a pre-populated situation, which I'm sure is similar. Mm. And our letters do go to the prim- to the referring doctors, mm. and they are available on the portal for the patients to log into. And then they the patients will get a separate patient summary at the time that's written more that skips a lot of the details and is more of an action plan diagnosis focus mm. that they would get at the time of a visit. Mm. That's I quite like that. I think that's quite a good model because yeah, the criticism from consultants, maybe this is what they've said to you Aisha is I've been referred this patient so I'm going to write to the doctor, you know, in doctor language you know, to the person that's referred them. But sometimes I think when these patients get copied in and there's all these, you know, Declan is a doctor and he doesn't even know what OGD means. So how can we we expect patients to remember? (laughs) I'm just in awe of this online portal and here I am with my little dictaphone (laughs) (laughs) recording tape. (laughs) We are about 30 years behind, I think. (laughs) It's it's a a difficult thing to do though, isn't it? I think. And it's also hard because you you do need to use specific terms to communicate to mm. other physicians. Um, and, I mean, simplifying some of them succinctly is, is not is not easy. I mean, I remember doing a couple of things for the BMJ and trying to write for a, you know, even from like an ophthalmology perspective, trying to write for a general doctor is, is difficult. Mm. So it's pretty challenging with the time constraints and stuff that you have as well, isn't it, to, to actually be able to do that. And in medical school, we're not taught how to write when, you know, and it's, mm. it's, it's a skill that really does take training. Um, so yeah, it's a challenging one. 
Well, interesting stuff. Uh, now we are all warmed up in our discussion. Uh, I am keen that we move on to the nitty gritty of our topic. Sorry, dad joke there. Um, but first, a message from our sponsor. Do you have a groundbreaking research idea that could transform the future of patient safety and clinician well-being? The MPS Foundation could fund it. The MPS Foundation is a global not-for-profit research initiative backed by 130 years of healthcare expertise from medical indemnity leaders, Medical Protection Society Limited. Our aim is to make the world safer for patients and clinicians in hospital and outpatient practice and dental care environments. Applications are now open. We're looking for proposals that are original, evidence-based and focused on applied research. Find out more at thempsfoundation.org and apply for a grant. The MPS Foundation, transforming the future. Okay, back to the show. Simone, as our expert today, I want to start with you. Could you tell us a little bit more about what is grit and what grit isn't? I think grit, you summarized great in your introduction. It is the passion and perseverance really for long periods of time and often without you know, the positive reinforcement or feedback that we might seek as individuals when pursuing something difficult. Uh, you know, so it really has nothing to do with talent or with luck or with our intentions or our wishes. It's more of you know, our ability to continue on a goal and a path making progress over time. And is this something that you, I mean, you mentioned how you got into talking or thinking about grit and um, that you went to see one of Professor Angela Duckworth's lectures. Is grit something that you now use when you think about yourself or you think about your trainees or your colleagues that you work with? So honestly, I think more about it with my children a lot of the time. (laughs) Uh, and how I can instill, you know, grit in them. I think one of the things when we think about grit is we automatically think it's just part of us or not. But like many things in our personality, it is mutable. And there is a lot of evidence that grit it changes over time. We know that older people have more grit than younger people, for instance. That's, you know, been well documented over the years. So I think about it when you think about studying it and who the proper comparison is, right? So, you know, you talk about your trainees and your colleagues and you think about grit. And is your comparison your next door neighbor who isn't in medicine? Or is your comparison your other colleagues that are in medicine? Are it the other people within your own specialty? So I think about it like that. And I think about it when it relates to burnout, Um, But I certainly don't think about it as far as screening for people for any type of positions. Um, I think that's interesting that you um, mentioned that grit is something that, you know, you have or you haven't got grit. Because I think my immediate assumption was this is testing for something that is, you know, part of your personality. But but what I'm, I'm hearing from you is that actually grit is something that you can almost train into people. Is that is that what you think? I do think it is something that people can get better at. And I think you also have to think of when it's time to quit something, right? I mean, if you're pursuing a goal and, you know, we're all successful doctors here, but there was a point where we gave something up, something else up in our lives so that we could make that decision to go into medicine, right? So whether it was, you know, sports or another academic career that you may have been interested in and working towards, we all do have to know when to pull back and to change course. Um, yeah, grit is absolutely something that can change over time. Angela's book, she talks about how she makes her kids do one hard thing every day. And that's how she thought about instilling grit in someone. Um, I think there's a lot of connections, obviously, between grit and things like um, Carol Dweck's, you know, growth mindset that Mm. she and others have talked about at length and, you know, instilling in children in school. Uh, And they're very similar, right, with these social science uh, abstract uh, ideas. 
And I do think that they're changeable and I do think we can do things to fortify our grit or to, you know, try to modify it. I saw Aisha and Declan nodding along when you said uh, that, you know, having grit is also about knowing when to give up. Um, And I do want to come back to that because I think that that's such an important point, especially at the moment and in the context that we're talking about this. But just going really into the basics, we're talking about grit here as a sort of an abstract concept. Is there a measure of grit? Can we measure grit in people? And if so, how do we do that? So there was, you know, Professor Duckworth is really well known for having developed the grit scale that takes about three minutes and it's available online. Anyone can take it and you can get your instant score as a feedback. Of course, as with any of these social science scales, you have to understand the drawbacks of them. The grit scale was really developed for research. It wasn't developed as a screening tool. You know, the feeling is, of course, you know, we're all science-based. If you can't measure it, it's very, very hard to talk about it. Mm. Uh, We like to put numbers and values on things, and this is another way we can put a number or a value to a a personality trait or an idea. But you can think about it. We're we're more as people than what a piece of paper tells us, right? And um, it's great for self-reflection. It's great for research. It may even be great for screening people who might be predisposed to burnout uh, or, you know, think about how we can make people grittier as a way to protect them from burnout. But it's very hard to use one of these subjective measurements to screen people for job applications or trainees into medicine or anything else because it is subjective. And also I think because it's, pretty easy for many people to give uh, dishonest answers, right? You know, you Mm -hmm. have to really be willing to be honest with yourself to measure a lot of these traits. So when it's that easy to fake, you shouldn't be using it to screen people for a job position or a career goal. So we can't use the score to choose the grittiest people, but it does give us an idea when we're researching or targeting people for help. Understood. Aisha, I saw you nodding when Simone mentioned about grit also being about when to give up. Have you had to give up on something in the past because of medicine? Oh, God, where where do we start with that question, Clara? <laughs> <laughs> have you ever done something really hard and just had to think, do you know what, Aisha, can't do this, just going to have to pop this in the bin? Oh, well... It's funny that you mentioned that because um, I did my grit score today oh. and I got my husband to do my grit, uh, his grit score Amazing. and we both did it without like knowing about grit and then we compared our results. And your husband is a general surgeon? Uh, vascular surgeon. Vascular surgeon, apologies. And my score was higher than his, which has caused main... <laughs> uh, this is what's caused the contention in our household today. <laughs> We're going to have a divorce on our hands. Well, maybe. <laughs> um, because... He says that actually, um, like like you said, Simone, you can fake it, can't you? And I think that my personal kind of life and grit score is very different to my medical life and grit score. So in my personal life, I can't have a hobby for more than one second. Um, whereas in a professional life, I will spend three years trying to get a paper published if if that's what what's needed. And it's so and it's so funny because in one in one aspect of my personality, I'll just give up immediately. And um, in another, I won't. And and so my husband was was raging at the fact that he's gone through <laughs> this difficult um, process of getting a vascular surgery number and has persevered for like his entire life to get there. And I've got a higher <laughs> grit score. <laughs> Do you think he has a higher grit score in his personal life? Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. That's really interesting, isn't it? How about you, Declan? I'm assuming you haven't done your grit score. It's all right, I didn't do mine either. Aisha's now <laughs> yeah. made it kind of standard of homework for this podcast. I yeah, I, I did have about a five-second brief look at what the grit score was, um, but no, I haven't done mine. I feel like you can you can have a grit sto- score to an extent, but there's many, many other factors which are also contributing. So I'm probably going to be leaving medicine pretty soon. And, you know, I, I haven't done my grit score, but I'd argue it's pretty damn high. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I tend to persevere, whatever. But, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one because, yeah, I think it's, it's also knowing, um, I think it's recognising, you know, your own 
<laughs> your own mental health and stuff as well, um, and and whether whether it's worth worth it in the the broad context of your life, really. Also, I guess I didn't quite understand when you're saying you you know you can use your grit score to know when to quit. Am I interpreting that right? As in, you know, some of the high grit score can persevere um, through challenges and achieve, you know, highly kind of alongside those challenges but I guess where where does it come into play when you're then thinking about using it to quit Simone if you don't mind me asking of course I don't think you can use it like that I think that like any personality trait some of your greatest strengths can also be your greatest weaknesses right so if you dig in your heels and you're going for something that's just not working out you you still need to have the self-recognition of when to quit I don't think the grit score has anything to do with that I just think that there are times when grit isn't the be-all, end-all for your, you know, mm. long-term goals. And do you perhaps think people with the highest grit scores, do you kind of find the find it challenging to quit because you can sometimes go for it too much? Which just just kind of reflecting when you know people get into kind of very competitive specialties. Um, which I feel pretty much all of us are in. That sometimes it can be a lack of the recognition of you know, other contributing factors and people persevere regardless? It's a great question, Declan. And I think it just speaks to how there's not one thing that we can use to make decisions or determine who we are as people or how we act. Do I think that the grittiest people don't know when to quit? I, I don't think that's generally true. I don't know that there's ever been any evidence to show that people with really high grit scores don't know when to make the decision to move on. But I do know that all of us in life have made that decision to give up on things, no matter how gritty we are, right? We've all made choices um, to give something up. And I think as Aisha clearly pointed out, she's really gritty in her medical life and maybe in her personal hobbies, you know, she's just not as gritty. And maybe her husband is, you know, a little bit more balanced or different, uh, has a different approach. And I think that that's probably true for all of us, which takes me back to, you know, it depends what your reference is. You know, what exactly are you talking about and who are you comparing yourself against? One of my questions, which I think you've sort of asked there, Declan, was, is there such a thing as being too gritty? Like, is it is it something that we, you know, we see as being good, you know, grit is good, it helps you stick at things, but also can it get you stuck in a job that you hate or a specialty that you hate because you think, well, I've said I'm going to carry on doing this, so I'm going to dig my heels in, you know, does it equate to stubbornness? I mean, I don't think it's the same thing as stubbornness. I think it's different. I don't know that there's a correlation between stubbornness and grit. There is a correlation between grit and success, which is very hard Mm. to define, but there have been attempts to study that. And there is a high correlation, but it's not the only factor. There certainly are gritty people that can end up not being successful. Is it because they end up too gritty and they're stubborn and don't know when to quit? That's a great hypothesis about maybe why those, that percentage of people doesn't end up, you know, quote unquote, successful. Mm. Well, I guess when I was thinking about this topic, when I first saw grit, I thought, oh, t- tough and stubborn. Those are the words that I equated it to. And then I think the more I've read about it, the more I've understood that maybe there's there's many more facets to it. But I think almost, um, you know, I know that you're saying that grit score in the in the sense that you've looked at it in the past and the, the score that uh, Professor Duckworth developed isn't for... Uh, selection but I was thinking that actually you know all the things that any of us do to get into medical school kind of proves the grittiness already I mean medical school is already a sort of a grit test in itself it's like can you jump through all of these hoops um, to prove that actually you want to stick at something when it's hard you know when all of your friends are going out and getting drunk and you're having to wake up at 9am the next morning to go to a lecture does that actually prove that you have some perseverance or are committed to something so actually you know are we kind of selecting for grit already uh, and then those that are relatively successful, all of these other factors are coming into play? Oh, 100%. We're pre-selected in medicine, of course. I mean, there's no doubt that we've 
become a pre-selected crowd, which is why studying grit and medicine becomes challenging in and of itself because mm-hmm. you're taking people that already do have very, very high levels of grit and you're trying to compare them to each other. And there's such nuanced conversations about, you know, do different specialties have different grit? I mean, it's really hard to compare when you're at such a high level at the beginning point. And I think that, you know, the scale was just used to try to study it and give a scientific measurement to a trait that is otherwise hard to define. Mm. Simone, when I was doing my uh, background reading about you, um, and I know that you've touched on this earlier, but I noticed that you were involved in a subject which is very close to my heart, which is women in surgery. Uh, And one of my first thoughts was, uh, is grit gendered, which I know pertains to the research that you did. One of the things I wondered is, do men generally have more grit than women? And historically, is this where there are more men in sort of successful or inverted commas, high-powered professions? Or is this less about grit and more about sort of pre-existing patriarchal structures or something else entirely? I think a lot about female surgeons. And I we can talk about, <laughs> Clara, we could talk about female surgeons for hours. Not a, but our study, not that it's the end to the story, but really demonstrated that within surgeons, at least, men, and there's been other studies that have mimicked these findings in residents and in medical, other medical specialties, that men and women have the same grit scores. They're not significantly different. I think that the point in me doing the study was that maybe not so much or hopefully less so now than when I went into training, but certainly when I interviewed for residencies, I was inappropriately asked many times if I was tough enough to do neurosurgery. And I think Mm -hmm. that while tough and grit are not exact synonyms, there are nuanced differences. I do think that there is a preconceived notion in the society here in the U.S. and probably globally, given the numbers are similar for female surgeons around the globe, that women are lacking some kind of, whether you call it grit or toughness or ability to, you know, be successful in a surgical residency and a surgical career. Hopefully the data, you know, we have shows that that's not the case. Women are just as gritty as men. So I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think also that, interestingly, what we saw, and I know that the data prove it out in many other places, is that burnout in women in medicine is and surgery specifically is much higher than in men. And if your grit's the same, but your burnout and the rates at which you're leaving your career are higher, you know, that becomes a much more interesting question. And is it mm-hmm. that women are more likely to report burnout than men, which is possible. You know, certainly there are, you know, gender and cultural differences about who reports what kind of symptoms. And then second of all, if if grit is the same, then what else is protective of burnout? Because if we can figure out how to protect people against burnout, then we can screen them and hopefully change things before you know, burnout occurs instead of waiting for it. Um, We kind of hypothesized some kind of success, however you define that, might be protective, but we don't have any answers. Yeah, I'd be curious to see if anyone else has ideas of what they think might be protective of uh, burnout besides grit as far as personality traits. I was going to ask you, Aisha, because you work in obs and gynae, and I feel like whenever people talk about women not being tough, somebody just has to say childbirth. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that you have tons of experience of that. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, if women are as gritty as men, why is it that women report more burnout? Or what could we do to protect people that report more burnout? It's interesting because like obs and gynae in the UK has one of the highest attrition rates mm. um, within the special within different um, specialties, and one of the reasons for it is burnout. Um, normally secondary to like litigation and things because mm. um, there's in obstetrics in particular particular you get quite a lot of um, incidents which end up in litigation. Um, 
And I don't know if there's um, any evidence to what I'm saying here, but one of the protective factors for myself and the people I work with um, within my own training program is having peers mm. and and um, peer support and being able to reflect amongst our group that actually um, these are normal things to happen within training and and to be able to almost have kind of an echo chamber um, and um, be able to vent a bit and but then also take take some constructive steps as to actually is there anything that I could have gone better it's actually it's true reflection really and then to be able to take it forward knowing that actually it's not just me and I think it's actually helped a, a lot of people get through difficult parts of training particularly when things have gone really badly wrong and which is the nature of Robson Guiney. That would certainly lend to your hypothesis, wouldn't it, Simone, that if you've got fewer women in a specialty and those women have a higher rate of burnout, if they've got less peer support or less, you know, I guess peer support in the sense that people that look like them or people that are like them, perhaps perhaps that's, that's a reason. Declan, as somebody who's in the process of leaving the NHS and has had a degree of, of burnout but is obviously incredibly gritty, is there anything you think that uh, that might have have been a protective factor for you? I, I mean, I think what Aisha says is, is amazing. I think ophthalmology and academia in itself are both incredibly isolating and there's so few people who are doing the same thing that you're doing that it's, it's very, very challenging to actually get somebody that understands... Um, what you're going through you know you can't speak to consultants because they're typically big big dog professors on their own who you know can't quite relate to those challenges anymore you can't speak to your peers because you know you're basically doing two jobs and trying to achieve the same clinically as them at the same time can't speak Mm -hmm. to allied healthcare professionals because they're just like research why waste your time doing that um so i actually think that i think that's an, an absolutely huge one there yeah, so I think that probably would have helped me. But, I mean, ultimately, it's it's the whole system, which is the reason why I'm leaving. But, but yeah, I think what Ayesha said would probably be the key thing that um, probably would have helped me stay in a little bit longer. <laughs> mm. I also think there's, a, like, a massive lack of mentoring. That, um, yeah. They, yeah. Like, yeah. back in the day, which is what I hear from my consultants all the time, you would have, like, someone who, you know, a senior person who would kind of take you under their wing you know, would support you through training um, and and kind of prevent all of these issues from arising or not arising, but having an effect uh, as an effect as it, it may be doing now. And I think there's just a complete lack of mentoring within our training programmes nowadays. I wouldn't I wouldn't know who to turn to from the consultant body to go to um, for that level of support. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I personally feel like almost the opposite. Um I mean, I I remember raising a few concerns about different things and you feel quite isolated as a junior because, you know, you you rotate quite frequently. So the consultants aren't, in my my personal opinion, don't appear as um, invested in you as they may be in the rest of the team that they have to spend the time with. So it's a very isolated position to be as a junior doctor, I think, at the moment now, Um, because the consultants have a pretty rubbish job generally as it is. Um, they're trying to, you know, keep everything great in the whole team. And then you have the, you know, SHO, well, F1 SHOs and registrars who are doing a hell of a lot of the groundwork, but really don't know where to turn. So I I do think that's a a major, major factor. Simone, you talked about um, grit not being this kind of unchanging entity that somebody just possesses or doesn't possess that it changes it with time and place I imagine and job and we talked about things you can do to increase somebody's grit but conversely are there things that you have seen or you've you know come across that reduce somebody's grit either in the short term or the long term do you mean more like a circumstance that might occur or a personality, another personality trait that comes into play that tempers it? Yeah, I mean, I guess we've talked a lot about the former and I think we all know what circumstances will erode our own grit or I'd like to think we have an idea. But yeah, I suppose the the, the latter, like from a personality point of view or, you know, for instance, you talked about um, 
you talked about most most of the evidence points towards that as people get older their grit improves conversely is there any you kind of like overarching life event or personality trait that reduces somebody's grit I think that the interaction is probably difficult to measure or to you know say that this one thing takes credit for it you know the relationship between things like resilience success grit and burnout are interesting um certainly we've seen correlations the question is is there a causation there right mm-hmm. We're always careful as doctors and scientists is thinking about is correlation the same as causation and so i, I do wonder if you know, burnout separate from your grit can then in a flywheel kind of circle back and impact your level of grit. So if you do have a certain level of burnout, does that then impact your willingness to persevere and persist on this goal for a long time? Um, If you don't have success, does that come back and tell you that your grit should go down? I don't know of anything that shows that. I tend to think that if you're if it's time to quit something or something's not going right, you need other personality traits that come in that will tell you that this is more stubbornness than grit and it's time to move on to something else. So I think it's a mm-hmm. self-awareness. So maybe it's that, you know, that you're a mindfulness almost that you need that can counteract when the grit is not your friend anymore. I'm really glad that you brought up the word resilience um, because it's a word that's come up on this podcast loads. We've had loads of discussion about it. Uh, And one of the studies that I came across when I was reading this, which I will um, link in the show notes, um, and this is a 2017 study uh, by Laura Halliday, Abigail Walker, Stella Vig, John Hines and John Bracknell, suggested that grit could be used to sort of target, for want of a better term, individuals who need more support. Um, And that could be done in the form of resilience training um and i know as i say that that's a bit of trigger word for some of us on this podcast um but taking aside what people think about resilience training and how it can be sort of weaponized um as an intervention what do people think about using these grit scores as as a way of sort of helping people by by supporting them better i suppose I mean, I'd be interested in hearing what people as trainees, you know, earlier on in their career feel, because I do think that if we're going to use it as a screening in the aims of helping and not as a way to weed certain people out, you know, there has to be obviously the same kind of privacy that you get from any other medical examination or data that people get so there has to be obviously a protection and a privacy issue with the data and then if we think about as an institution or a health service that we're going to help to build people protect them against burnout or build resistance resilience or grit then there has to be before you actually screen for that there has to be a program in place that is going to be you know, proven to be beneficial, because if Mm -hmm. we're going to use it, then we have to be able to help them, right? We can't just get this data and say, boy, you might be at risk for burnout or, or, you know, you need to work on something, (laughs) you know, so I think you need to have a plan in place first. Um, Yeah. But I'd be interested to hear what some of the other folks think on the panel about whether that's even a good idea or if that's kind of crossing a line for them. I'm not sure, you know, because it almost feels like you're setting up like a two-tier system um, Mm. based on a score so that some people get some support, which can either be seen as they're getting lots of extra help or it could be seen as, oh, you're not good enough, so you're getting extra help. Mm. Um, And then, like, the rest. And I I think it does the opposite of levelling the playing field. I think it makes it completely uneven. And I I don't think I would like that as a trainee. No, I mean, you wouldn't you, you wouldn't like it if you were in the, like, no-grit group or the low-grit group, would you? I don't, I don't know. I don't think I'd like it, any any of those groups, to be honest, mm. because you can argue, like, each each group has its own benefit, don't you think? Mm. What do you think, Declan? Yeah, I mean, you, you may have swayed me. I honestly thought, hmm, that might be a good idea. Um, as, as long as, like Simone said, there's an actual, um, you know, <laughs> reasonable evidence-based plan um for those who are struggling because then it would at least you know show that they're at least trying to care about us 
um, and you know trying to quantify in that in a certain way to find those who are most at risk. Um, but like you just said, that will come with a million challenges, and I think yeah, there would be conflict between different trainees, different allied healthcare professionals. Why are the doctors getting it, but we're not. We're doing x more hours than them if if that's the case i think it would be difficult to roll out um but i mean generally it would be nice to see that as an organization the nhs are trying to use some sort of evidence to intervene to those who may be most at risk as we've kind of already talked about it's not just about your grit score but it's it's your personality as a whole so you how can you you know stratify risk based on just a grit score yeah, I mean, they may well add additional things in, I, I guess, to make it a bit more, yeah, a bit more thorough. I, I, I'm curious, would you be in favour then of having, if there was a proven training or programme that could build things like grit and resilience, would you be interested in having it then available on just a, if you want it, you can go and do it basis or a mandatory everybody has to go and do this because it's that important for us. And so there's no two tier system between the haves and the have nots. No, I mean, I was just going to say we've we've discussed resilience, resilience training we have in the NHS. And I imagine that there is, you know, something similar in a lot of other places. And I think that the criticism certainly from people that I've spoken to on this podcast and off this podcast. And I think I heard someone say recently, resilience training in the way that we have it at the moment, particularly with the NHS being in the situation it is, is asking a person to run into a burning building, waiting for them to catch fire. And then once they've caught fire, bringing them out and saying, here's how you can put the fire out. But by the way, now you have to go back in the building again. And that's why a lot of people feel, actually, we're not fixing the systemic problems that have created, you know, that have meant that person is now on fire. We are just fixing the individual and making it an, you know, an individual problem when actually a lot of this is systems-based. So I can totally see where the idea of resist, uh, resilience training comes from and that there is a lot of good in it. But I think I can also see the other, the frustration when there's a systems-based problem um, and somebody saying, you know, I don't think a training program is going to sort this out. Um, I guess my, fi- my final question was going to be whether we call it grit or whether we call it resilience or whether we call it toughness or stubbornness whatever the name is for it is actually one of the issues that a lot of healthcare systems whether they're public or private have relied on any healthcare uh, practitioners grittiness for too long and actually we're getting kind of to the end of people's gritty tethers now um when it comes to you know why scale burnout uh, and and generally poor well-being and people leaving the professions yes absolutely i mean there's there's loads of different factors that come into it you know economic you know we we aren't getting paid as much as we once were and we can't afford to to live on the salaries that we're on and then you go and you have increasing amount of challenges at work and you feel devalued on our role you could argue is less respected and um, whether it be by the public or not so i think there's an accumulation of all of those and I mean for me anyway you know having been someone who I would probably say is fairly gritty um, throughout medical school in the early parts of my career I'm at the end of my tether um, and there are other alternatives which which give you a better better work-life balance and you need to focus on your own well-being um, so yeah I, I completely agree I'm very much at the tether of my grit. Simone, you said something right at the beginning, which uh, I just wanted to circle back to you to sort of, you know, come full circle, so to speak, is one of, in your definition of grit, one of the things that you said was um, that it's the, the being able to continue even when you're not getting that validation, you know, somebody saying, well done you, keep going. And I actually wondered if maybe that is one of those protective factors that we were talking about from burnout is actually somebody saying to you, you've done a good job, keep going, you know, in whatever form that comes, public or, or personal. I don't know if that's something that you you think protects you, Aisha, um, from, from feeling burnout. Definitely. I mean, um, so funny story, but um, as at the beginning of my training... Every cesarean section I went to, I fainted in. 
every one of them. <laughs> I spent most of that year lying on the floor <laughs> on labor ward. But the thing that got me through that year was my peers and my consultants being like, look, it's fine. You're going to get over this. You're like, don't, don't let this like completely destroy you because it was, mm. um, cause I was like, God, how am I ever going to do this specialty? Like I have to be able to stay upright. Um, <laughs> and it, it was, it was them saying you're doing a good job. You, you know, you're good at every, every other part of your job. This is just a little hiccup. You'll get through it. And eventually I did. <laughs> um, but yeah, I definitely think that was something that kept me in training and mm. managed and kept me um, going through to um, ST5 now. <laughs> even even when all those systems-based things, even when the house is on fire, that's, that still keeps you going. That's really interesting. Grit is not the be-all, end-all. There are other things that are very important to us as physicians and as people... And while we are already self-selected as a pretty gritty crowd, obviously things like integrity, honesty, you know, hardworking, tolerance, kindness, these are all important factors for being a good citizen, a good human being, and certainly a good physician as well. And I think making any overreaching statements that grit is you know, the most important thing that we look for is saying too much you know it happens to be the topic we're talking about today but I, I you know I don't want anyone to walk away thinking it's the only personality trait that should be looked at or cared about um, or thought about when we think about who we are and what's protective of our own personal you know burnout and whether it's grit or a combination of things and I think that both Aisha and Declan have made really good points that for them, things that are protective are having potentially mentors and peers. And those are things that, you know, are very hard to measure. Um, we had toyed with the idea of success. So I think that there's this obviously is multifactorial. It's not really easy to pick out one thing. And I think we each as individuals will need to do our own self-exploration about what it is that you know, we think makes us grittier or less gritty or will protect us against burnout um, because it's probably a little bit different for everyone. I think that's a really good note, uh, probably the most positive note to leave this podcast on. Um, so thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Uh, and thank you for listening to Doctor Informed. Uh, that's all we have time for today. We're really keen to hear from our listeners. For ideas of future discussions and reflections on the topics we've discussed today, please get in touch. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you got your... Wherever, well, if you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or share with the people you know. Tell your friends about it. That really helps people find us. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please subscribe to Dr. Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and you'll be notified when our next episode is up. Until then, goodbye from us.